In the Bible, the way we walk means more than just how we move our feet. It's about how we live our lives. It's more about our lifestyle than merely our gait. Beginning in chapter 4, Paul told us how to move through life as believers in Jesus. But now in chapter 5, the theme continues. We're to walk in love, walk in the light, walk in wisdom, and we're to walk in submission to one another. Chapter 5 begins, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. You know, kids are prone to mimic their heroes. When I was a child, my dad was my hero. I'd sit in the bathroom and I'd watch dad brush his teeth. Dad, though, wore dentures. And so he'd pull out his plate and he'd take his toothbrush and he would scrub his dentures. Mom said she'd walk in on me at times and I'd be there brushing my imaginary dentures. (laughs) Mimicking dad. God wants us to mimic him. We should walk as Jesus walked. And here's how, verse 2, walk in love. Walk in love. You know, my psychology book in college defined the word love as an agitated state of psychological arousal. But is that real love? Imagine gazing into your honey's eyes and whispering, Baby, you agitate my psyche. I believe love is more than just a burning brainwave. It's more than a feeling or an emotion. For the true definition of love, you have to look to its author. On the cross, our Lord Jesus illustrated for us what love is all about. Paul states it in verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. According to Jesus' example, genuine love involves giving and offering and sacrificing. In other words, it's a commitment. Amy Carmichael once wrote, You can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. Jesus gave up his rights, his security, even his comfort, He sacrificed it all to save you and me. Sacrifice is now the plumb line for real love. And then he says in verse 3, contrasting love, but fornication in all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Notice Paul here clumps three things that are contrary to love. Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. Love is all about giving, while lust is all about getting. Two stray dogs in an alley like each other enough to have sex. That's not love. True love willingly waits. It never uses or defiles or dishonors the one it loves. Love lays down what I want and lives for God's best. A Christian will preserve the purity of their future spouse, Christians are called to love one another. Reminds me of the two lovers. The woman asked the man, do you love me? He answered, oh yes, dear, I certainly do. 
She asked again, would you die for me? To which he replied, sorry, mine is an undying devotion. (laughs) But listen, love that won't die to what I selfishly want, that won't put God's will and your best first, is not real love. Well, Paul keeps describing what true love looks like. He says, neither foolishness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by what makes them laugh. Here he says, neither crude humor or borderline banter or sexual innuendo should come from a Christian. Our vocal cords should vibrate only with the thanksgiving to God. And then verse 5 says, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Here are three folks who won't go to heaven, for none of them are capable of restraint. He mentions a fornicator. This is a person who continually engages in illicit sex. His downfall is lust. The unclean person disregards God's taboos. He or she makes up their own rules. Their downfall is pride. And the covetous man lives for material things, for gold and for glitz. His downfall is greed. And notice this covetous man is labeled an idolater. You know, most of today's Americans would never bow to a statue. What we think of as traditional idolatry. Oh, but too many people today worship sex. They worship independence. They worship money. When you value something supremely and pursue it at all costs, it's the equivalent of an idol. Reminds me of the young businessman who flipped his car over the guardrail and went down a steep embankment. The twisted metal severed his arm right above the elbow. When the hero hero units arrived on scene, the guy was just whining, Oh, my Mercedes. Oh, my Mercedes. The paramedics were appalled that this guy was so materialistic. All he could think about was his car. One of the EMTs, he scolded him. He said, Buddy, you got more to worry about than that car. Your arm was chopped off. Well, the man suddenly gets this panicked look on his face and he starts crying, Oh, my Rolex. Oh, my Rolex. (laughs) Hey, the moral of the story, be careful what you worship. Verse 6 tells us, let no one deceive you with empty words, that is, with false assurances. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Realize, friends, God is no fool. You can say you worship him. Yet in reality, worship sex or self or stuff. It's not what you say that matters. It's the pursuit of your heart. Verse 7 warns those of us who are Christians not to follow idols. He says, therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Notice, according to Paul, we didn't just walk in darkness. We were darkness. 
And now that we're in Christ, we don't just walk in the light, we are light. See, changes occur deep inside a Christian. We don't just change environments when we become a Christian, we become a new person. And the light of God now shines from within us. A Christian is like a spiritual firefly. He or she lights up their dark world. Paul encourages us to walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Goodness to others. Rightness with God. And truth in all things are the three rays that combine to form the light of God. And then we're told in verse 11, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Rather, expose them. In the wintertime, northern cities, they use salt to clear the roads of ice and snow. And thus a mixture of exhaust and salt and snow gets plastered onto the sides of everyone's car. They all end up looking this murky gray. But on the first semi-like spring day, some fellow will wash his car and restore it to its original color. And when everyone on the block sees that one clean car, they realize how dirty their cars have become. And as Christians, friends, we are called to be the one clean car. You may be the only one, but we are called to be the one clean car without condemning anyone, without being judgmental in any way. We can expose the darkness By shining God's light. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Some sins are so shameful they shouldn't even be mentioned. Nothing is gained by talking about them. They're best left in silence. We drive out the darkness. Not by studying it. Not by discussing it. Not even by fighting with it. But by shining the light. He says, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. What this world needs most is for you and I to walk in God's light. Therefore, he says, he being Isaiah, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. We need to be wide awake to God's concerns. You know, a battle rages around us. It's one thing for the world to be asleep in the dark, but what's more tragic is for the church to be asleep in the light. We need to wake up. He says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Here's another way to walk, circumspectly. The word means to walk gingerly or to be careful where you plant your feet. I learned to walk circumspectly when my kids were toddlers. My boys played with Legos. (laughs) And invariably, not all the Legos got picked up when they were done playing with them. And usually, I would inadvertently find those stray Legos in the middle of the night. Oh, step on a Lego in the dark, man, and it hurts. As a result, I learned to walk circumspectly or carefully. And this is how we need to walk in this dark world. Satan is notorious for throwing banana peels on the sidewalk. 
One false move can cost you years of pain and agony. I once heard of a fallen preacher who had been involved in a sordid affair. He made the statement, It's amazing how 15 minutes can ruin your life. What a warning. We need to walk circumspectly, and here's how. First, redeeming the time because the days are evil. If you live to be 80 years old, and throughout your life you work five days a week, eight hours a day, let's say you sleep eight hours a night, you travel about an hour each day to and fro, you spend two hours eating and then another hour each day grooming and on hygiene, then here is the discretionary time you have left. If you're 20, you got about 15 years left to invest in non-mandatory activities. If you're 35, you've got just 10 years of life left. If you're 45, you've got only seven and a half years to live as you please. If you're 55, you've got just four and a half years to invest. And if you're 65 years old, you've got less than 18 months to spend life as you see fit. And if you're 75, we may not see you next Sunday. I mean, time is running out on all of us. If you want your life to count for God's kingdom, you don't have a second to waste. If you want to walk wisely, you need to redeem the time. For Paul says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And here's God's will for us all. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You recall at the Feast of Pentecost, the original disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, but the onlookers accused them of being drunk with wine? Apparently, there's some similarities. There's some ways that being filled with the Holy Spirit is like being drunk with wine. I guess for one, God's Spirit suppresses natural inhibitions. That's what wine does. He definitely impacts our thinking and affects our disposition. Ultimately, He even influences our behavior. The difference, though, is that alcohol causes dissipation. Another word for disorientation. It clouds my perspective. It deadens my senses. Whereas God's Spirit does just the opposite. He brings clarity to my thinking. And He heightens my awareness of God. Distilled spirits will send me into a tailspin. Whereas the Holy Spirit helps me gain and maintain control of my life. And the Holy Spirit produces an unbridled joy. A spiritual high, if you will. Hey, be filled with the Holy Spirit and you'll be prone to uninhibited worship. Verse 19. For speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you'll always have a song on your lips if you're filled in your heart with the Holy Spirit. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have never done so, I encourage you to ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And then verse 21. 
submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, to walk worthy of our calling, we're to walk in love, in light, in wisdom, and in submission to one another. Now, some of you know what's coming next. As a matter of fact, you've already read ahead. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. That's why the wives are now cringing a little bit. Some of you husbands have perked up suddenly. But before Paul says a word about wives submitting to their husbands, he tells us all to submit to one another. See, when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, my needs are met, so I can then focus on the needs of the people around me, namely my family. That's why the key to marriage is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's been said two people can have a happy marriage only after they get a divorce from themselves. But once we take to heart verse 21, then verse 22 applies. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I'm reminded of the man who asked the librarian to help him find the book entitled, Man, Master of His Home. She pointed him to the fiction section. (laughs) Indeed, Paul's instructions for husbands and wives won't win any awards for political correctness. In fact, today, very few marriages are ordered biblically. But take note, today, very few marriages last. Before you toss out God's wisdom on marriage, you should take a second look. First, realize what Paul is not saying here. No wife should become a doormat for a selfish or an abusive husband. The Greek word translated submit is the word hupotasso, It means to arrange under or to line up behind. Biblical submission doesn't mean that a wife can't have a life of her own. But she's to arrange her life around and under her husband's. You could say the husband sketches the lines of the picture while the wife then goes back and colors in the lines. Both parties contribute equally to the painting, but they play different roles. It's an ordered equality. You know, if someone were to say, you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off, that's not a compliment. All bodies need a head, not two heads and not no head, but one head. And God has established a single head over the family. And it's the husband's role to supply that leadership while the wife is to lend her support. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, once commented, the best advice I can give to unmarried girls is to marry someone you don't mind adjusting to. God tailors the wife to fit the husband, not the husband to fit the wife. For Paul continues, for the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Notice, these marital roles aren't just assigned arbitrarily. For in marriage, God is painting a picture of realities that go far beyond our domestic concerns. 
You see, the reason your marriage is such a big deal is that God gives it universal, eternal, mystical meaning that transcends you and your spouse. Marriage has a bigger purpose than just making two people happy. It's a spiritual snapshot. Its mission is to portray divine realities. And both participants should be sub or under that mission, submission. You see, God has chosen to illustrate Christ's relationship with the church through your relationship with your spouse. This is what makes marriage so sacred and so special. Kathy and I are co-stars in a long-running heavenly production. I'm the leading man, and she's the leading lady. And together we are portraying to our friends and family the greatest love story ever told, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why it is critical for us both to play our assigned parts. And in my opinion, the most difficult role in the drama belongs to the husband. For verse 25 tells us, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And gentlemen, that is a tall order. A wife should love her husband enough to live for him, but a husband should love his wife enough to die for her. And not just once in some gallant act, but in a million daily ways, we husbands should be willing to lay down our rights to protect and nurture and minister to our wives. But there's more. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. In other words, are we loving our wives in ways that refresh and purify her? Are we pointing her to Jesus Her forgiveness, his forgiveness for her, and his acceptance of her? Or do we regurgitate her faults and failures? Do we treat her with grace, the grace we've been shown? Or do we grade on her performance? Do I love my wife as Jesus loves me? This is the question every husband needs to ask himself. For here is the Lord's goal for his church that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Jesus desires a glorious church. Though we were wounded and wrinkled and have our age spots, Jesus sees in us no spots. He's committed to our cleansing and escorting us into his glory. And this is how every husband should treat his wife. Verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. As a man nourishes his body, A husband should help his wife grow as a person and as a Christian. Here's a question for you husbands. Since she married you, has your wife gotten prettier or plainer? Is she flourishing or floundering under your influence? 
In other words, what have you been doing to help her grow and glow? Here's a wise saying. Treat your wife like a thoroughbred and she'll never be a nag. (laughs) A good husband enriches his wife. He doesn't stifle her or smother her. This is why I say the husband's job is tougher. Ladies, all you've got to do is respect and follow his lead. His job is to love you as Christ loves the church. Verse 31 quotes Genesis chapter 2, God's original plan for marriage. It says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. A marriage in God's eyes is when one man and one woman do three things. First, they leave. There's a separation from parents and from past associations. They leave their parents. Then they cleave together. There's a dedication now to their spouse. And then they begin to weave a life together. There's a growing unification that requires a lifetime to complete. Thus, they leave, then they cleave, then they weave. And if God blesses, they conceive. (laughs) Verse 33 reiterates what men and women need most. Nevertheless... Let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Notice this now. Women need love and men need respect. This is why husbands should love their wives and wives should respect their husbands. Ladies, your man needs respect probably even more than he needs love. And this has a snowball effect. When a husband loves his wife, she respects him, which prompts more love for her, which then solicits more respect for him. But that snowball can roll in reverse. For if a husband feels disrespected, he won't love his wife as he should, which fuels more disrespect in her, and the beat goes on and on. This is why husbands need love and Wives, husbands need to love and wives need to respect. And what about parents and kids? Chapter 6, children, obey your parents. And this commandment to children becomes the priority of every parent. Moms and dads, your job, first and foremost, isn't just to nurture or educate or transport, or provide. It is to teach your child obedience and respect. He or she is to learn from you how to follow a higher principle and a higher authority. Sadly, today it seems that the parents are the ones who are obeying the kids. It should be the opposite. And yet note the qualification. Children, obey your parents In the Lord, for this is right. God would never expect a wife or a child to obey or submit to an ungodly or to an immoral demand. That would be a violation of God's will. 
It's been said, godly submission never requires what God forbids or forbids what God requires. But when good parents desire God's best for their child, then that child should learn to obey his parents. Which brings us to verse 2. Honor your father and mother. And this is what makes a parent's job so tricky. You know, you could force a child to obey, but you have to inspire that child and earn from them honor and respect. And parents have to do both simultaneously. We have to teach obedience and we have to inspire and earn their respect. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Generally speaking, you'll live longer and better if you listen to your parents. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This Greek word translated training, it means discipline. The word admonition means encouragement. You know, Martin Luther used to say that a parent needs both a rod and an apple to raise kids. Wait, wait a minute, that's not what I meant. He meant a rod to spank the child when he rebels and an apple to reward his good and godly initiative. You need the discipline, but you also need the encouragement. Raising children requires that healthy balance. Kids need a rod of correction and a nod of approval. As Christians, we need to live out our high calling at home. But we also need to live it out on the job. And that's what he addresses in verse 5. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. You see, the Roman world of Paul's day was full of slaves and bond servants. Some of you might think your boss treats you like a slave, but you're not one. Yet what Paul says to slaves also applies to modern employees. And he tells us to obey the boss. We should tackle our duties as if Jesus himself assigned them to us. Work with sincerity from the heart as if we were serving Jesus himself, not just earning a paycheck. Verse 6, not with eye service as men pleasers. And we've all seen this firsthand. I mean, the boss walks in the room and oh, everybody gets busy. Everybody acts like they're doing their job. He exits and then everyone goes back to drinking coffee and sloughing off and doing, playing video games and whatever else. That's eye service as men pleasers. And that should not be done by a Christian. We need to do our work as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. For me, the true measure of spiritual maturity is the ability to do whatever I do to God's glory. Whether that's turning a wrench or programming a computer or servicing a customer, can I do all that I do unto the glory of God? We should all be able to turn our work into worship. And then he says in verse 8, 
knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. The eternal paycheck that you'll one day receive will be signed not by your employer, but by the Lord himself. And then verse 9 has some instruction for bosses. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Every boss needs to remember that you too have a boss. And his name is Jesus. Every boss should treat his workers fairly and charitably. For one day, you'll give an account to Jesus as to how you treat those who work for you. And we all should recognize the revolutionary impact that Paul's instructions here had on marriage and on parenting and on labor. Understand, all ancient cultures taught that wives should submit to their husbands and that children should obey their parents and that bondservants should serve their masters. That was nothing new. But what Christianity did It was the first and only faith to introduce the principle of reciprocal responsibility. That husbands also had an obligation to love their wives. That parents should never provoke their child. That bosses shouldn't bully their workers. There was a reciprocal responsibility. This was the Christian ethic and it transformed both the home and and the workplace. Which brings us to the third section of the book of Ephesians. We've been seated in Christ. We're to walk worthy of our calling. And now we are to stand against the devil. For like a child, a Christian needs to learn to sit and then walk and then take a stand. So he says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And whenever it comes to dealing with the devil, humans are prone to two mistakes. On the one hand, we underestimate the devil. See, Satan loves for us to think of him as some little imp in red leotards and horns and tail and a pitchfork. Perhaps the devil's greatest feat is in making so many people think he doesn't exist. Don't take him seriously and you'll fall into his traps. But on the other hand, don't overestimate him either. Satan is not God's equal. He's infinitely inferior. He is a created being gone sour. An angel booted out of the choir because of his runaway ego. Yes, he has some power, but God is more powerful, far greater. Never forget 1 John 4 verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Remember, Satan is a defeated foe. The only time the devil can hassle a Christian is when we let him. This is why we need to withstand him, as James 4 verse 7 tells us. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. On your own, you're no match for the evil one. But Paul says, be strong in the Lord, and in the power of his might. Let's be strong. 
For no one knows Satan's limitations better than he does himself. And that's why Satan seldom attacks us head on. For if he does, we'll run straight into the arms of Jesus, and that's curtains for him. The Satan prefers a bag of tricks. Paul calls them here the wiles of the devil. And they include doubt, fear, jealousy, condemnation, discouragement, dissension. See, Satan will do all that he can to use these things to distract you from who you are and what you have as a child of God. The devil wants to undermine your faith in Christ and rob you of your blessings. Don't let him. And thus Paul tells us, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Don't forget, guys, it's a spiritual battle we fight. You know, you don't fight modern wars with swords and spears. And you don't fight spiritual battles with fleshly techniques. This is why we need spiritual weaponry. And God gives us his armor here. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Now realize, while Paul wrote this letter, he was probably chained to a Roman soldier. That meant that he had plenty of time to inspect that soldier's armor. And Paul now uses the soldier's protective gear, that which was issued to him by the Roman legion, as analogous to our spiritual armor. And the first item that he mentions here is the belt of truth. Realize the ancients believed that our loins, our abdominal area, was the seat of our emotions. Today, we still make references. We talk about our gut feelings. We still look at that as the seat of our emotions. And you see, Satan loves to tinker with our emotions. If he can cause you to walk by feeling rather than faith, he can sink you. Thus, Paul says, the first thing we need to do is strap on the belt of truth. Just because you wake up one day and don't feel like a Christian, that doesn't mean you're not one. We need to bind our feelings with the truth of Scripture. We need to rest our emotions on His immutable Word, not our fickle and fleeting feelings. Don't let your devotion be determined by your emotion. And then he tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The ancients viewed the heart as the seat of the desires. You desire something. You want it with all your heart. And for Paul, the heart needed to be protected. We too need to nurture and cultivate godly desires. Conversely, Satan is quick to inflame old, sinful desires. Be on guard. Remember, you're not the same person that you used to be if you're in Christ. Your deepest desires have truly changed. You need to put on that breastplate 
of righteousness. And then verse 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The Roman soldier wore a unique type of sandal. The soles had stubs in them that the soldier uh, could use on rocky terrain that would keep him from slipping or stumbling. You know, at times, we as Christians can get blindsided and knocked off balance. Someone attacks our faith with questions we can't answer. We become confused and are tempted to doubt. In such times, we need to rest in God's peace. When there's confusion in my head, focus on the peace that's in your heart. No one can deny the presence of God that I sense. No one can deny the miracle that Christ has worked in my life. I need to let God's peace steady my faith until I then have time and opportunity to seek out those answers to my questions. And then verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The Roman shield was big enough to protect a soldier from a shower of flaming arrows. He'd crawl up under his shield and he'd wait out the attack. Realize instead of single thrust, Satan often lobs volleys of evil at us all at once. And in those moments, we need to hold up our faith and trust the Lord no matter what. We need to rest in our faith until the attack has passed. And it's interesting, so interesting, that the Roman shields were gangable. In other words, they interlocked so that multiple soldiers could join shields and create a protective blanket. Likewise, our faith gets stronger when the faith of many come together. Faith is gangable. That's why God wants us to come together and share our faith with one another. And then take the helmet of salvation. This fallen world spews negativity and cynicism constantly, and it sours our outlook. That's why we need mind protection, a helmet of salvation. Safeguard your thoughts with God's good news. You know, a football player would never go into the game without a helmet. And we, too, need to guard our perspective. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, verse 2, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Strap on that helmet, man. And before we leave our armor, notice the one part of the body that is not covered. Any guesses? It's the back. It's the back. There's nothing for our back. And why? God never wants us to retreat. Stand against the devil. Don't run from him. The French Foreign Legion has a motto. If I falter, push me on. If I stumble, pick me up. If I retreat, shoot me. That's well said. God has no armor for our backs. And we're given two offensive weapons here in the next two verses. First is the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God, your Bible. Your Bible is sharp and powerful. And it becomes the sword of the Spirit. Under the Spirit's guidance and influence, the Scriptures can slice to the heart of the matter. They can shred the lies of Satan and dissect our own motives. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 10, one of David's mighty men, 
a man named Eleazar, he fought the Philistines. We're told until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. His hand froze to the sword's handle. He couldn't put it down. And this should be our attitude toward the word of God. And then verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Here's our other weapon. Prayer is the Christian's heavy artillery. From behind enemy lines, you can bomb the enemy's stronghold through prayer. You can blast away excuses and break down a person's defenses before you ever move in to share with them the gospel. Paul encourages the Ephesians to pray. And he says, while you're at it, why don't you pray for me? He says, for me. That utterance may be given to me. That I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains. Then in it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now remember, Paul's writing in a rat-infested prison. But he's not whining about it. As a matter of fact, he sees his circumstances as an opportunity. For if God has him in prison, it is to share his faith. And thus he asks them to pray, not for bail money, but for boldness, for him to be a witness. And then verse 21. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Tychicus was apparently the deliverer of Paul's letter to Ephesus. He would also update the church on Paul's condition. And so the apostle closes with a benediction. Peace to the brethren and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And there we have Paul's letter to the Ephesians.